everyone, and welcome to The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan. This is my show. I make it for you, so I'm glad you're listening. You just made it in time. It's great. Uh, this episode is... There's some two stories that might not seem like they're connected. Um, there's one figure that connects them together. It's not a unified theme. But I love it when people cross paths, you know? So uh, the first story has to do with bananas. Like, you know how there's a joke that people fall on bananas like they slip on them? A lot of people don't realize that that was a real thing. So we're going to talk about that. And one of the central figures in the struggle against banana slippage was Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. And um, there's another man who's the second story. His name is Matthew Henson. And he was most likely the very first person to stand on the North Pole, stand on top of the globe. And he was part of an expedition, a team of people who got support from none other than Theodore Roosevelt. And in fact, that same Theodore Roosevelt would make an impact on Matthew Henson's life after his time as an adventurer came to an end. So let's get started. Bananas are everywhere. It's bananas, really. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. But when you think about it, today's bounty of bananas makes sense. They're affordable, they're nutritious, they're easy to eat, and they even come in their own packaging. It's those first three points that have made bananas one of the world's most popular foods. But the incredible efficient natural packaging they come in, the banana peel, has created its fair share of problems. You've probably seen a comic, a cartoon, or even an old movie where someone slips on a banana peel. You might ask yourself, did anyone ever really slip on a banana peel? And after you ask yourself the question, you might even give yourself an answer. That seems ridiculous. Slipping on banana peels never really happened. And that would seem like a reasonable answer to your own question. But would you be right? You'd be worse than right. You'd be wrong. Once upon a time, banana peels were such a dangerous obstacle to random walkers that Teddy Roosevelt himself got involved. <clears throat> Theodore. Right, sorry. Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. According to records, the first time anyone in Great Britain ever saw a banana for sale was way back in 1633. A London shopkeeper received a shipment of the fantastic fruit from the island of Bermuda, which had recently been colonized by Great Britain. As nations often do when they colonize another area which isn't really theirs, they take advantage of the land and all its possibilities. Like many other Caribbean and South American places, Bermuda was a great place to grow bananas. But that's not where they originated. Bananas are believed to be the first fruit, and they likely originated in Asian locales such as today's Indonesia and the Philippines. Despite the burgeoning banana presence in Central and South America, in England, the long and largely unfamiliar food was only occasionally available. It was difficult to ship them across the ocean before they ripened to the point of turning into brown mush. And anyone who has ever left bananas on a kitchen counter for a few days can tell you that that can happen very quickly. America was behind the times. Most Americans would never cast their eyes upon, much less sink their teeth into the fruit, until after the 1876 World's Fair in Philadelphia. Before this, people had tried to bring boatloads of bananas up from the south, but in most cases, the cargo was an unappetizing squishy brown mush by the time the bananas made it to market. Advancements in transportation and refrigeration made the banana a bit more practical. And any time there is something newly practical, 
someone is going to try to make a lot of money. The Boston Fruit Company, for example, began as a small importer at a wharf in the New England town. Then it became the United Fruit Company and eventually Chiquita, which you may still find at supermarkets near you today. Based on their eventual enormous banana business, the United Fruit Company would, at one point, control a fleet of ships so powerful that the U.S. Army borrowed them during World War I. They also tore down jungles and forests for banana plantations, created railroads in Central and South America, and even toppled foreign governments for the sake of banana profits. It's not really a good look for huge fruit companies of the era when you examine their international business practices closely. But the everyday citizens of America, Great Britain, and any other nation nursing a growing obsession with the novel yellow fruit had other problems to deal with around this same time, which was the end of the 1800s and the dawn of the 1900s. Yes, turn-of-the-century people had banana problems of their own. And let's just say, it got bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. There are a few things you should consider about this time. In many places like New York and London, not all streets were paved or bricked. Those that weren't paved were dirt. And as you surely know, wet dirt turns to mud. Now, those streets that were brick were not traveled by cars or buses. Those had yet to be invented. Instead, horses were the most common mode of urban transportation. Beyond one's own two feet, of course. And all of those horses often left a little something behind. My grandfather called them road apples. But that was just a funny name. To put it more bluntly, the horses left manure. Poop, you might say. On the road, it was gross and messy and smelly and slippery. Now here's another thing to consider. Public sanitation didn't really exist at this time. There were no garbage cans on the corner. There were no trash collectors. For a while, the closest thing to trash pickup was a pack of pigs some cities released to chow down on the edible bits of garbage left to rot in public spaces. This didn't help people break the habit of just tossing their trash on the ground amongst the mud and road apples. So leftover potatoes, rotten lettuce, maybe even some beet stew, you could just toss it wherever you walked. Wooden plank sidewalks and both paved and unpaved roads were covered with smelly garbage, which often got coated in mud and manure, adding a slipperier slipperiness to many things that were already slippery. In many big cities, workers were marching off to factory jobs in greater and greater numbers. And all those people were pleased with the proliferation of the naturally prepackaged and easily portable produce known as the banana. Once plucked from its peel, the fruit gave a quick burst of energy, and there was almost no cleanup. Toss the peel on the ground, toss it out the window, toss it over your shoulder, and forget about it. At least until the peel inflicted itself upon another person passing along the same path. It was a Tuesday evening in 1884 when New Yorker John Bassett was making his way home from church. As it was a late service that he had left, the sun was setting as his footsteps squished in the street. Whatever might be hiding in the manure mud in his path was thrown into darkening shadows. And lo and behold, lying in wait like a snake in the grass was a slimy banana peel. Though his eyes never saw the slippery brown peel, poor John's foot found it, sure as you're born. The instant he lost firm contact with the ground, 
John knew that he had fallen victim to the villainous banana skin. He tumbled like a sack of rocks to the filthy ground, but the gross gravy covering the city streets he was writhing around on paled in comparison to the pain he felt in his now broken leg. But he was not alone, nor was it purely an American problem. A quick search of British newspaper archives echoes this story tenfold. The dangers of dropping banana peels was exemplified in Birmingham this morning. William Smith was walking when he trod on a piece of banana. He fell violently and broke his leg. Councillor Eben called attention to the dangerous practice of throwing banana skins on about the pavement. A friend of his, in the course of a walk from Norwood to High Street, counted upwards of 100 skins on the pavement. The dangers of dropping banana peels was exemplified in Birmingham this morning. William Smith was walking. When he trod on a piece of banana, he fell violently and broke his leg. Hugh Bryden was walking down Harwell Street last evening when he slipped on a piece of banana skin lying in the roadway. He tried to save himself from falling, but failed. Yes, it's sad, but true. Hugh failed. Done in by a banana. But one person who was not resolved to fail when it came to the pesky peel problem was future president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt. <coughs> Theodore. Theodore. He was aware of dozens, if not hundreds of stories from both sides of the Atlantic detailing the painful falls people took when they inadvertently stepped on the slippery leftover banana skins. Before he was president, Mr. Roosevelt was the New York City police commissioner and this role put him in a unique position to declare war on New York's banana peels, which is just what he did in February of 1896. The New York Times ran a story titled, War on the Banana Skin. Mr. Roosevelt orders prohibitory ordinance enforced. Must keep sidewalks clean. Appealing to patrolmen and captains, Teddy, Theodore! Yeah, yeah. Theodore, explained the bad habits of the banana skin, dwelling particularly on its tendency to toss people in the air and bring them down with terrific force on the hard ground. It was a danger to fellow citizens, despite being the convenient thing to do in the moment. But Roosevelt knew that we must think beyond ourselves at any given moment. To keep the peels off the ground, anyone caught flinging fruit rinds or peels would be fined, and patrolmen targeted the areas of town with markets and vendors selling fruit from carts on the street. Despite the efforts, plenty of people kept slipping, sliding, and falling thanks to the fruit, which gave the newfangled motion picture movies an easy and relatable gag to put on screen. It became so common in movies that Charlie Chaplin complained that eventually the only way to make anyone laugh at a banana was to have them jump over the banana skin to avoid it and then accidentally fall into an unseen manhole. This was dangerous in real life, but in the early days of comedy, it was a clever gag. Eventually, cities created teams of sanitation workers to handle garbage and keep the city clean. New York's first sanitation workers wore white to connect them in the minds of an untrusting public to the cleanliness of medical professionals. Of course, the white was quickly filthy thanks to the voluminous mountains of muck that they had to contend with. On top of that, many of the city's residents did not trust them and chased them out of the neighborhoods. But once they realized that there were fewer fruit fatalities thanks to the efforts, citizens changed their tunes. And they even began willingly disposing of their own trash properly. Customers are rushing to your store. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Calling all kids in the car. Brittany and Meredith here from the chart-topping family road trip trivia podcast. Are you dreading another silent car ride with the fam? We've got the cure. Three rounds of fresh trivia every single week. Movies, music, even science and Disney. We've got something for every trivia buff in the car. No more crickets chirping on those long journeys. The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast is your secret weapon for connecting and laughing with kids of all ages, teens, toddlers, adults, it doesn't matter. Spark their curiosity and challenge their brains with every episode. New episodes drop weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast and turn those car rides into epic adventures. Now it's time for You Have 30 Seconds, and this month it's some Canadian history thanks to Ruthie Davies. Take it away, Ruthie. Hi, Nick. My name is Ruthie, and I'm from London, Canada. I'm going to tell you about Viola Desmond, who's an important person in civil rights in Canada. Viola was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia in 1914. One night, her car broke down, and she went to a theater. In a theater, there was a front part and the balcony. They always, always sat in the front. It was better to see them, but an usher told her she had to sit on the balcony because she was black, which is unfair. They thought she would just go up into the balcony. Were they right? They were worth that. They were wrong. Viola went back to her original seat to protest. Later, Viola went to court and lost. She was released from jail a couple years later and died at the age of 50. Now she's on the Canadian $10 belt. Thanks, Ruthie. That was really great. I appreciate you sending that. It was really cool to learn about Viola Desmond and some Canadian history and the face of some Canadian money. How how fitting that she is honored in that way. Thank you very much. If you have a you have 30 seconds, then just find out how to do it on our website. And uh, you just need a phone to do it. It's very simple. You just have 30 seconds to tell me a story. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Yes, indeed, it is quiz time, and uh, I have some banana questions for you. So question number one, it's hard to know for sure, but it is believed that a pharmacist named David Evan Strickler invented a very notable banana dessert in 1904 in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. What was this banana dessert? If you said the banana split, you were correct because it was the banana split. The banana split originally cost 10 cents, according to an interview David Strickler gave later in his life. You see, many pharmacies in these days at the turn of the century had deli counters and soda fountains and ice cream for sale. The Tassel Pharmacy was no different, and 23-year-old David split a banana, covered it with delicious stuff, 
and made history. Okay, question number two. Are bananas radioactive? Yeah, I know, it's kind of a weird question. But if you recall our episode about Marie Curie, then you might also recall that bananas are, in fact, radioactive. Yes, it's true. You might know that they are high in potassium, and potassium is radioactive. And actually, there is a measurement called the banana equivalent dose that compares the radioactivity of any given object to that of a banana. Okie dokie, here's the third and final question. What is a cluster of bananas officially called? A hive, a hand, or a bodlo of bananas? It's actually called a hand, and when you picture a cluster of bananas, the individual fruits actually look like fingers. In fact, some people call them fingers, but I just call them bananas. For 30 years in the later part of his life, Matthew Henson led a relatively mundane existence working at the New York Customs House, a job that came after a recommendation from none other than Teddy Roosevelt. Theodore! Theodore. Anyway. Sharp-dressing, poetry-loving Matthew was happy, kind, and by some accounts, even jovial in those days. Perhaps these qualities were how he earned the name The Kind One, from a group of Inuit people that he had gotten to know in the Arctic when he was a younger man. But as he worked with New Yorkers, worrying about unexciting stuff like taxes and duties on imported products from other countries in the customs house, it's unlikely anyone realized that their coworker, Matthew Henson, was actually a groundbreaking explorer. But in fact, not only had he spent 20 years on expeditions trudging through the wet heat of Central America and the deep cold of Greenland, but there's a good chance that this man with whom they shared an office was the first man to set foot at the North Pole. Matthew Henson once stood atop the world. Matthew Henson was born in 1866 in Nanjamoy, Maryland, to farming parents. He was born one year after the American Civil War. But unlike most black people of the area, his mother and father were free prior to the war and emancipation. As free people, they were not enslaved and instead worked a farm for their own profit. But after the Civil War, hate groups like the Ku Klux Klan were angered by the idea of equality and terrorized the area's black population, including the Hensons. As a result, when he was seven, Matthew's parents decided to sell the farm and move to Georgetown near Washington, D.C. Sadly for Matthew, both of his parents died while he was still young, and he went to live with an uncle. Around the age of 10, Matthew attended a Washington, D.C. ceremony held in honor of late President Abraham Lincoln. Speaking that day was the great orator, Frederick Douglass. It seems that something Henson heard Douglass say really stuck with him. The great orator spoke about the importance of his fellow black citizens committing to education and opportunity. Not long after this, Matthew's uncle died, which left him without a caregiver, or much of anything else for that matter. So inspired by Douglas, he sought opportunity. At only 12 years of age, Matthew Henson headed out to sea to work on a ship called the Katie Hines. What he found aboard the Katie Hines was a life of purpose and adventure. The man in charge, Captain Childs, quickly took a liking to Henson and fed his eager brain. Matthew learned from him not just reading and writing and mathematics, but the necessities for life at sea, survival, 
and something that would come in handy later, the finer points of navigation. Aboard the Katie Hines, Matthew spent years traveling the globe. He visited South America, Asia, Africa, Europe, and more. And along the way, he realized he had a knack for picking up new languages. As a young man, he had risen to be a trusted part of every sailing expedition the Katie Hines made. But when Captain Childs died, his life was thrown again into upheaval. The captain had been a surrogate father of sorts to the skilled young man. Without the captain's influence, Matthew returned to land and got a job working in a clothing store in Washington, D.C. Sources differ on why, one day in 1887, Robert Edwin Perry walked into the shop where Matthew worked. Some say Perry was looking to sell some sealskins and furs that he had brought back from a trip to Greenland. Others say the man simply wanted a new hat. Whether Matthew purchased his pelts or hawked him a new hat matters not. What matters is that Robert Edward Peary was struck by Matthew's knowledge and experience. Peary would be leaving soon for Central America to scout out a possible route through Nicaragua for a canal, and he asked Matthew to join the expedition. It was a fateful turn of events. And it's reasonable to assume that they came across more than a few bananas as they trudged through the wilds of Nicaragua and spent time in the towns and villages along the way. Over the course of the journey, it became apparent that Matthew was unusually talented and capable when it came to exploring. The two men developed a bond that would last for decades. Peary's real dream was to make it to the North Pole. On one side of the round earth sits the South Pole. It is the farthest point south it is the access point at which the Earth rotates, and it is found on a continental landmass known as Antarctica. Other explorers were dreaming of going there, and efforts were made, but Peary was only dreaming of the North. South Pole dreams might have been a little more realistic. Because it is a solid landmass, it doesn't really move. The North Pole is also an access point at which the Earth rotates, and it is the farthest point north on Earth, but it sits in the middle of the Arctic Sea. There is not a landmass, just gigantic shifting pieces of ice that are so huge that they often probably feel like a landmass, but in reality they move and change with the seasons and the seas. This could mean that actually making it there would be a difficult task. The dream was bananas really, but Robert Peary couldn't get it out of his head, and Matthew was happy to help. He figured it beats selling hats or buying seal pelts. Over 22 years, they made not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, or even seven attempts, but eight attempts to get to the North Pole. Hey, it was tough work, and it took months each time. They even helped fund their work by selling one of the largest meteorites ever found on Earth to a museum for $40,000. That gigantic space rock alone took them months to move. It was common for them to set up camp and prepare from the northern part of Greenland. After each trip, they learned a little bit more about what they had to do differently and how to get there successfully, and hopefully how to make it back alive. Along the way, they got to know many of the Inuit people who lived near the Arctic Circle. Matthew impressed all of them in how he related to the people, learned their language, valued their customs, and even learned how to build sleds and mush dogs nearly as well as anyone else in the Inuit villages. Peary did not have a deep interest in those things, but Matthew did. This is when natives began calling him Matthew the Kind One. Their penultimate 
or second to last journey, was encouraged by Teddy Roosevelt in 1905. Theodore. Theodore. President Roosevelt arranged for funds that outfitted the team with a state-of-the-art boat with a super powerful icebreaker attached. Never one for modesty, the new boat was even called the Roosevelt. That's our uh, new ship, huh? I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, this ship is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. What? Don't worry about it. With the fancy new ice-crushing ride, they thought their seventh attempt in 1905 was the one that would finally see them reach the North Pole. Were they right? No, they were worse than right. They were wrong. Despite months of work, below freezing temperature, dog sledding for days on end, and eating very little, they had to turn around and come home. Staying alive was their most important objective. But this would not be the case with the 1908 expedition. What originally began as a large party of dozens dwindled by design as they got closer and closer to the North Pole. As the days passed, the party had a growing sense that this incredibly desolate and far-flung destination was becoming a reality. They knew they'd make it this time, after months of hard work on this journey and years of work on previous journeys. Not to mention hard work and help from hundreds of Inuit men, women, and children who helped stage, outfit, and scout the pathways. As they made their final approach to the top of the earth, only six people remained. There were four Inuit men, Ukwe, Uta, Igingwa, and Siglu. There was the commander, Robert Edwin Peary, and there was the incredible and unmatched Matthew Henson. On April 6, 1909, their calculations indicated that they were very close. Matthew, as usual, was on the lead sled, and he later wrote this. The commander, who was about 50 yards behind, called out to me and said that we would go into camp. We were in good spirits, and none of us were cold. So we went to work and promptly built our igloos, fed our dogs, and had dinner. The sun being obscured by mist, it was impossible to make observations and tell whether or not we had actually reached the pole. The only thing we could do was crawl to our igloos and go to sleep. When they shook the sleep from their heads the next morning and waited for the weather to clear, Peary and Henson took measurements and made other navigational calculations. If the North Pole had been a snake, it would have bitten them, as the saying goes. Luckily, I don't think there are many snakes in the Arctic Circle because cold-blooded animals need a lot more warmth. According to their findings, they had slightly overshot the North Pole, skidded right over it, and it was actually just behind them. It was surprising and a little relieving to learn that they had crossed the spot already. The decades-long efforts and dangerous journey had come to a somewhat uneventful conclusion. Even more surprising, when they returned to plant the flag, Matthew realized that it was his footprints that were first left on the spot the day before. So if it was in fact the North Pole, he had actually been the first person to stand on it. This made Robert Edward Peary upset. And like a spoiled brat, he barely spoke to Matthew Henson on the long journey home. Which was okay with Matthew because he could speak to his Inuit friends. And he could claim that he was the first person to stand on top of the world. It was a long way from the farm in Maryland where he was born. Heck, it was a long way from anywhere. But it was his accomplishment. Of course, like many stories from history, this doesn't end like a fairy tale. The relationship between Peary and Henson had once been deep and trusting and important to both men. 
but it seems Peary couldn't handle the fact that Henson was first. They never really made up. Even more unfortunate, Peary got all of the credit and attention and compensation for the feat. Henson had to ask him for permission to publish a book about the North Pole expedition, which Peary allowed in 1912, after he had published his own and made a fortune speaking about it. In later years, there have also been a lot of experts questioning the accuracy of the measurements and wondering if they did actually make it to the exact point of the true North Pole. It's hard to know for sure, but none of that can take anything away from Matthew Henson. The kind one lived in New York with his wife Lucy and worked at the customs house for decades. Eventually, his feats garnered the attention they deserved. At 70, he was made a member of New York's illustrious Explorers Club, and not long after, he was awarded a Congressional Medal of Honor. When he died in 1955, he was buried in New York's Greenwood Cemetery. But in 1987, his remains were reinterred in Arlington Cemetery, America's most important national cemetery. It was a fitting honor for a heroic and trailblazing man whose distinguishing characteristic beyond bravery was kindness. Case in point, he's buried very close to Robert Edwin Peary. It is reported that it was Matthew's wish to be buried near his old partner. Hey, thank you all for listening. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this has been The Past and the Curious, and this was a really fun episode. I was really excited to put this one together and to share it with you. And I had a lot of friends help out, too, so I'm going to thank them very quickly. You may have recognized Mr. Eric from What If World. That was his voice reading one of the newspaper quotes of banana-related tragedy. Also, Ali Thrasher of the PJ Library Presents Podcast Network. Thank you for your voice. And Matthew Winner the host of A Kid's Book About the Podcast. Thank you for your voice. And also my friend Meredith Kelly, founder and CEO of Storytopia. All of those great people are part of Kids Listen, which is a very important organization to me. I love it. Okay, I also have a lot of Patreon people to thank. Teresa Jansen, hello to you. And the same goes for you out there, Lena Cook or Cook. Hello to you as well. I'm so glad that you all are out there listening um, to sisters. A almost nine-year-old named Izzy and a six-year-old named Lily. Hello to you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you all are listening and you enjoy the show. Uh, oh, some friends near D.C., Washington, D.C., Charlotte Brooks and Avery Eastwick. Hello to you as well. There's so much history in D.C. I'm a little bit jealous of you because you can just like walk out your door probably and just find some history. Of course, anybody can do that. But there's a lot of great history in D.C. and some awesome museums. Hope you enjoy. Um, okay, next, Ian Alexander. Hello to you. I'm so glad that you are tuned in and enjoying the show. And Scott Clayman, the same goes for you, buddy. Hello to you, Scott. Thank you for your enjoyment and your support. And I love that you listen. Um, let's see. Oh, some friends in near Philly. There's another one, Colin and Nathan Schneider. Uh, in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Hello to you, brothers. Thank you for listening. Um, the Wavra family, especially Evelyn, who enjoys this show very much. So thank you. Hello, Evelyn. And uh, let's see, Jody Semitis, who is turning nine. I'm sorry, turning eight in September. Don't mean to rush you there, Jody. Take your time, buddy. Uh, turning eight in September. That's a big deal. I hope you have a great birthday. 
Um, and last but not least for this month are Ryder and Lauren, a pair of siblings. I understand Ryder really likes uh, World War II, and Lauren has really been enjoying the Underwear Chronicles. Well, so have I, Lauren, so thank you very much. Thank you to all of you. Thanks to all of the Patreon folks. They help us keep going. Um, but you can too, just by telling people about the show. That's one of the most valuable things that anyone can do, is just use your mouth to tell somebody about the past and the curious. Or you can use your fingers, that's what they're for. Duh. My name's Mick Sullivan, thank you all very much. I hope you have a great one. <laughs>